I was born in the 70s. <laughs> Grew up in the 80s and early 90s. And I wonder if there are any others in this room that remember what it was like to only be able on your television to watch whatever happened to be on TV channels at that time. Anybody remember that? Whether you had broadcast and it was only like five or six channels or cable, you could only watch what was on at any given time. Some of you younger, younger kids, anybody born after that? A few of you guys, yeah. <laughs> Those guys are like 20 back there. They don't remember that. That's scary. You can imagine the excitement in my house when my dad came to us and, and told us, sat us down and said, I've got something special to tell you guys. There's, a, there's an invention called the video cassette recorder. The VCR, and it allows you to be able to watch whatever movie you want at whatever time you want, as many times as you want. You can rewind and pause and fast forward. It's like bringing the movie theater into your living room. So, so we went and took this big trip as a family down to Curtis Mathis Electronics Store. And we looked around in there and found a VCR. And we looked at some of the movies that you could buy, the, the video cassettes. And I don't know if you remember this. When they first came out, they cost about $79.95 each to purchase. Does anybody remember that? They were so expensive because it was new technology, but you could rent them. And so we started to look through the rental section where you could rent one for three or four dollars. And I'll never forget the very first movie that our family rented was The Never Ending Story. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Remember that? That song sticks in your head. I won't sing any more of it. But that, as a, as a young boy, that, I loved that movie. You'll remember uh, there was a, a boy named Bastion in the movie. And he went into a bookshop and the book owner, bookstore owner said, don't, don't take that book. That book is different than any other book. You're not old enough for that book. And it's like any young boy would do when he hears that. He says, I want, I want to get that. So he sneaks it and he sneaks it into his school and goes up into the attic of the school while school's going on and begins to read this book. And, and as he reads, he, he's reading about this world called Fantasia. And Fantasia is this wonderful, beautiful place. But as he reads, he discovers that it's being destroyed. And there's this thing called the nothing that, that's overtaking Fantasia. And the, the princess is ill from the nothing. And she calls for this hero named Atreyu. This young man and his horse Artax to, to save Fantasia. And it's a very good read, but he's, as he's in the attic, there's one moment that, that the movie takes a turn where, where he coughs or sneezes or something, and everybody in the book, as he's imagining and reading, hears him. And he starts to get a hint that somehow there's a connection between him and what's going on in this never ending story. And to cut to the chase, as, as the book comes to a climax, the princess says his name to him as he's reading the book. She says, Bastion, the only way to begin to save Fantasia is for you to give me a new name. And, and Bastion's here in the attic of his school like, this is not happening. This is a book. She's not really talking to me. But the world continues to crumble until Bastion finally shouts out his dead mother's name to give to this princess. 
And all of a sudden, the transformation and salvation of Fantasia happens. He realizes that he's a part of the story that he's reading. And for me and probably many other young boys and girls, it gave me an excitement about reading to imagine and and jump into a story that way. You say, why are you starting with the never-ending story? Well, I think there's a, a parallel. Just as he realized and was blown away to realize that he was part of what was going on in that book, I believe that it's the same with you and I when it comes to God's story. I think a lot of times, almost unknowingly, we pull out the Bible and read about God's story and, and we read it as though it's history, either past or history to come, and we somehow forget the incredible idea that God's story continues on today. That you and I sitting here in this room in 2013 are part of God's story of salvation, his story to save mankind back into a relationship with him. I think that ought to blow our minds. The book of Acts only has 28 chapters. So one of my favorite church planting organizations is called Acts 29. You get the idea that what they know that what they're doing today as they plant churches is a continuation of what God began to do in the Bible and continues to do today. So as we look at Paul's first missionary journey, we we started last week. We said he traveled 1,400 miles, and that's pretty amazing for the, the time that he lived in sharing the gospel I want us to think about Paul's message to the group he shows up at, how he's showing them you are part of God's story and how God is speaking to you and I this morning that you and I are still part of this same story. So I'm going to start out in Acts 13, verse 13. From Paphos, where we left Paul last week, you remember he spoke to a Roman proconsul who was saved There was a sorcerer there that was trying to keep the proconsul from believing, and and Paul struck him with blindness. So Paul has this huge victory with Barnabas, and then he travels on. It says he sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left him to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. I want to show you just real briefly, as we did last week, just a reminder of where this journey started. Paul started in Antioch in Syria at the church with Barnabas, where they were sent out They traveled down the coast and went down to this island of Cyprus where Barnabas was from, made a couple stops, and then they end up in Perga for a brief time. We're not told much about what happens there other than that John left them, and they end up in Antioch, which is called Pisidian Antioch. Now, one thing you guys might be wondering, here's Antioch, here's Antioch. What's up with all the Antiochs? There was a general several centuries before that had a that conquered much of this land. And he had a father named Antiochus, and he had a son named Antiochus. So as this general, Seleucus, conquered all this empire, he put about 16 cities out there called Antioch, which is wonderful for him, but confusing for all the rest of us. It's like if I were to conquer part of the known world, I would call every city Ohio State Buckeyes. (laughs) And you guys would all have to live with it because I was a... Conquering general. But that's the deal with all the Antiochs. They show up there, and I want to get into what happens. Verse 14, on the Sabbath, that was Saturday, 
for the Jews, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So they show up in this strange city, and it says they they went to the synagogue. You might be saying, what's a synagogue? Well, synagogue was like the center of the world for the Jewish people. You guys will remember that they were scattered in the Old Testament because of disobedience, and they went all over the world. And being all over the world, they cannot get back to the temple. So they needed a place in each city to worship. So they built these small buildings. And they met together there. It was their marketplace. It was their worship places, similar to what we do on a Sunday morning. And Paul and Barnabas would always start in the synagogues. I just want to pause there for one second. When we talk about a big God who's got a big salvation story, I want you to think about how cool this is that centuries before, when the Jews were scattered because of their disobedience, God knew what he was doing. He put all these synagogues around the world knowing that centuries later, Paul and his missionary team would land there first in each city and have sort of a foothold for his message of salvation. So even in the scattering of the Jews, God has his great strategic plan of getting the good news out there. So Paul and Barnabas show up in this synagogue and and they had a pretty common service order as Many of us do, you know, we, we do several songs and then a message and then a couple more songs and an offering and we, we get into our, our rhythm of what we do here. They had the same thing. What was common in the synagogue, it was mostly men. Some synagogues were all men, sometimes as small as 10 or 15 of them. They would sit down and the service would always start with what was called the Shema. You guys know this as Deuteronomy 6. One of the Jewish men would stand up and read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he would go on. Then he would reach back into a a cabinet in the back of the room and pull out scrolls. And the scrolls contained the law and the prophets. That's the first five books of the Old Testament was the law, starting with Genesis, ending with Deuteronomy. And the prophets were those books of the prophets and some of the other books. And they would read from that in the original Hebrew and then translate it for the people. And then after they did that, they would ask any competent man in the room to get up and give a commentary on it. I want to share that with you because that's what happens when Paul and Barnabas showed up. They had done the Shema, they had looked at the law and the prophets and they saw Paul and Barnabas as visitors. Maybe they saw Paul's robes and knew he had been a Pharisee at one point. Who knows? But they said to these new guys, if you have a word of exhortation, share it with us. And I want you to check this out. Just in these next two words, as Paul begins his speech, it says, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand. And before we even get into his message, I want to point something out here. They were ready. Paul and Barnabas were ready when the opportunity knocked for them to share about Jesus and they were called on. They didn't say, oh, no, thanks. We're just checking this place out. Just want to see how good the coffee was, you know, how good the sound system was, whatever. They're like, no, we're ready. This is why we're here. We're here to share the good news of Jesus. And they were ready. And I want to ask us, you know, as we go 
throughout our lives, whether it's in another country, as Chris and Brianna over in Asia, or whether it's in your business place, are we ready for that lunchroom conversation where somebody asks us, gives us an opportunity, hey, what do you believe? Where do you go to church? Why do you go there? What is it that you rest in for knowing you've got a relationship with God? Are we ready? And some of that's just knowing the facts of the gospel. I think, you know, we prepare for everything else in our lives, right? If we're going to take a one-week vacation, most of us don't go without some sort of an agenda. It's about everything in life we prepare for. It makes sense that if we're going to share the good news of Jesus that can save people from an eternity apart from God and bring them into a relationship with God, it makes sense that we do a little preparation. And one of the tools that, that we use in this church that our missional community is about to go through is a primer called the Gospel Primer. It's eight weeks on familiarizing yourself with the message of the gospel and how to communicate it to people. If, you, if any of you want that, I'll put a link on our Facebook page. But it's important that we know it. I think it's also important that we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit as, as he leads us through our day. You know, as he put, puts an opportunity or a person in front of us that he's leading us to share with, we got to make sure we're not so busy and so distracted by the cares of this world, the stuff, the schedules, you name it, that we miss it. See, being ready is not just knowing the facts of the gospel. It's listening and saying, all right, God, is this the moment? Are you, are you leading me in this? And they were ready. Are we ready? And I want you to look at how he dives in. And I'm just going to highlight these next few verses. He's going to go through this primer on Israel's history. And I'm just going to fly through verse 16. He, he talks about God chose Israel. He made them prosper in Egypt while they were slaves. You remember how they multiplied and there were so many of them. With mighty power, he led them out. He endured their conduct in the wilderness. He overthrew nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people, all this took about 450 years. Then he gave them judges. He gave them Samuel. They asked for a king. He gave them Saul. Saul was rejected. And finally, he lands at David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And then he gets to the point. And we'll talk about this in a moment. But verse 23, he says, from this man's descendants, whose descendants? God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. He's saying all your history that you love and is so special to you and is so important to you is pointing to this one, Jesus. It, it all comes to this. And what I want to talk about here is how Paul, you know, he was ready. And you guys have all heard the... the Time-worn phrase, ready, aim, fire. I'm going to use that for, for an illustration point this morning. He was ready to share the gospel, and he aimed. And what I mean by aimed is he knew who he was talking to. He knew he was talking to a group of Jews, so he knew it was important, and he was one himself, to start with what they knew and what was special to them and use that as a bridge to talk about Jesus. When he went to Athens later on in Acts chapter 17, you'll read his sermon there. He's in Greece. He, he doesn't speak about all this history of Israel because that means nothing to the people in Athens. What he starts with there is this idol that they have that's written, says, to an unknown God. 
He starts with what they know and says, I know who this unknown God is. You, you see the pattern. He's got the, the message of the gospel that never changes, but he's always ready to aim it at the people he's talking to in a special way to use their background as a bridge. You say, what does that look like today? Well, as I share, I want you to think about who is it in your life that you know that needs Jesus. And I want you to be sharing, think, thinking about what, what's their world? What do they know? What do they believe? What's their context? What are they going through? And we as responsible sharers of the gospel should start there as we talk with people. A couple examples. One time I was hiking up in Sedona. And you guys know there's lots of new age types of teaching up in Sedona, lots of talk about vortexes and mediums and you name it. So we're hiking down a trail in Sedona and this lady hikes by us and, and she's like, hey, does anybody know where the vortex is? <laughs> and my first instinct is what? Like, no, and keep walking. But then God starts laying on my heart. He's like, you know what? You do know the vortex. What's a vortex? A vortex is a way to spiritual deepening, a way to God, whatever. You do know the vortex. The vortex is Jesus. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. So I I went back down the trail and found this lady, and I said, you know, I I actually do. Are are you staying in a hotel around here, or where are you staying? She's like, "Uh, yeah, I'm staying in a such-and-such hotel in Sedona. I said, there's usually a Bible in that nightstand there. The only vortex I know of, you'll find in the John 14, verse 6. That's where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I pray she went back and read that, but what was I doing? I was starting where she was at and then leading her to the truth. I know a pastor of a, a Navajo church in Flagstaff. One of the primary ways they bridge Jesus into the Navajo people is in Navajo legend and lore and even religion, there's, there's this great warrior called the Monster Slayer. And the Monster Slayer is one who kills death to protect his people. He kills those who would seek to harm the Navajo people. And so this pastor said, when I talk to the people about Jesus... I don't say Jesus is the monster slayer, but I start with the monster slayer, their concept of that, and and I lead them to this Savior that died in our place to conquer death, to conquer our sins. He rose again, and he was victorious over all this. He, He used it as a starting point. Now, you start to think about the people that you live with. Just a couple possible examples. Let's say you know a a young lady in her late 20s who really struggles with trusting people and and feeling love because growing up, she was bounced from foster house to foster house to foster house. And she never knew what it was like to have a father that unconditionally loved her and provided for her and cared for her. Well, great place to start with her, your minds are probably already whirling, is to say, well, I know a God who says in Psalms, he's a father to the fatherless. He's a God that can meet that need for unconditional love that you have. Let's start there. Or or you think about a middle-aged man that that has thrown much of his life away because of an addiction to meth or some other drug. And you're you're talking to him and, and you're like, God, how do I communicate the truth of Jesus to you? And I... 
or to him, excuse me. And, and I just start to think about, wow, this guy's obviously looking for something to fill a deep hole in his life. He, he's looking for satisfaction. And he's found that the meth lets him down. It gives him a temporary satisfaction, but in the long run, it's ruined his family. It's not working. I, I think about what? I think about Jesus talking to the woman at the well. He says, you drink this earthly water here, you're going to get thirsty again. But I offer you myself. I'm the living water. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. I think about the Jesus that says, I'm the bread of life. I'll satisfy that need inside of you. And so you start there and speak to that person where they're at. I even think of using different characters in the Bible. Like I think a lot of times we go wrong when we list all the characters in the Bible as superheroes. Like we set up Abraham and, and David and Moses and these, Paul even on these pedestals were like, whoa, that's a superhero. I can never, ever be used by God like that. And we do a disservice because they're not the hero of the Bible. This saving God who is mighty to save is the hero of the Bible. So when I think of those people, I think of them as entry points. You meet someone that says, hey, you know, I, I struggle with lying uh, when I get afraid. I, I, I try to lie my way out of the situation. Well, let me show you Abraham. He did that twice. Even after he had talked face to face with God, he felt the need to lie to these kings. Yet God was faithful to him and used him through his faith. God can use you. You, you talk to someone that says, uh, some th sometimes I just blow up in anger and take things into my own hands because I can't wait on God. Well, guess what? That's what Moses did. He killed an Egyptian and had to run and hide in the desert for 40 years and then learned that it was going to be in God's time and God's way. So even... Our struggles, their struggles, can be ways to help connect them with this God who, crazy though it is, he loves us and, and he's faithful to us. So as you think about those people around you, are, are, are you thinking about how can I launch into this gospel? Know your context. Funny example of this, I think about the pastor in a, a small country town. He shows up at church early, he's already with the sermon and the, the local Farmer Joe shows up and looks at the clock. It's five till, and Farmer Joe's the only one there. And it's five minutes go by, and it's time for service to start at 10. And Farmer Joe's still the only one there. And Farmer Joe says to the pastor, well, I'm the only one here. Do you think I should just go home? Or do or, uh, you think you want to go, go ahead and preach the sermon? And, and uh, the pastor speaks the farmer's language. He says, well, Farmer Joe... If you got the pig slop ready in the morning and only one of your pigs showed up, would you feed them? And the farmer says, yeah, I reckon I would. So the pastor gets rolling and, and he gets into his sermon and half hour passes, an hour passes, hour and a half passes, two hours pass. I heard one guy say most pastors are 25-minute preachers and they're the only ones in the room that don't know it. <laughs> It's getting kind of long, and Farmer Joe's getting restless. Finally, the pastor lands the plane, and the uh, pastor says, what'd you think, Farmer Joe? And Farmer Joe says, I don't know, Pastor. Only one pig showed up. I don't know if I'd make him eat all the slop. <laughs> 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 the 
The, the pastor missed the boat on the length of his sermon, but he was speaking the farmer's language, talking about feed and pigs, right? Just silly example, but we need to speak the language of the people that we're around when we're speaking the gospel of Jesus. But as I said, all of this context pointed to Jesus. Verse 23, from this man, David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. He talks a little bit about John the Baptist, and then in verse 26, verse 26, this is where they start to realize, wow, this is not just dead history. We're part of this story, and we've got to decide how we're going to respond to this Jesus. It's here in the synagogue. It's here today. The story goes on. How will they respond? How will we respond to this Jesus? Verse 26, he says, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us, us, that this message of salvation has been sent. It was to them, and it was to every one of you in this room today. This message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. They didn't see him as their Messiah. They didn't know they were killing the Messiah. They missed it. They weren't looking for a suffering servant who would die and rise again. They were looking for a king who would throw Rome off, so they missed him. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Even in their missing it, they fulfilled the prophecies that the Messiah would be killed and rise again. It says, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, Paul goes on, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. What's he sharing there? He's sharing just the core of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, he does it in bullet points. He talks about Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, and people saw. That's the core of the gospel right there, the, the basic facts. He, he goes through that, and he starts to show them, now it's time for you to make decision about it. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. What he promised them in history, he's fulfilled for us. We are now part of the story. Now, I'm not going to hit every word in these next few verses, but he goes on to talk about these promises that were made to David. David was the greatest king in Israel's history, when you were a good Jew and you look back at your history, those were the heydays when David was king. Things were good. There was peace at the end of his reign. The kingdom was large. But he's saying those promises made to, to David, like you will not let your holy one see decay, that was a psalm that David wrote. They were actually fulfilled, not in David, but in Jesus. He says, when David served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. This week, how many of you saw it on the news? They found one of David's palaces in the Jerusalem area. 
they uncovered what they believed to be one of King David's palaces and one of his storerooms. That's pretty awesome. I'd love to go over there and see that. Paul would think that was awesome too because it confirms the truth that, yeah, this is history. It's not some, some story that God just made up. But Paul would also look at it and say, you know what? They found it, but it's rubble. <laughs> and if you look further and found David's tomb, what you'd find in it is a pile of bones. See, David was a part of the story, but it all pointed to Jesus, the one who was buried and did not stay in his tomb but rose from the dead. It's all about Jesus. And here's the crux of it for them and for us. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, and this is the best news in the world. I don't know where you come in from today. I don't know if you've tried time after time after time to find your way to God. I don't know if you've found yourself frustrated with different religious paths that others have led you down. I don't know if you've tried just, hey, I'm going to be a moral person. And it feels good at the time while you're doing something good, but at night while you lie in bed, you know deep in your heart that still you don't measure up to a holy God. And you need a way to connect to him. You need that fulfillment. You need something to fill the void in you. That's what some of these people were feeling in this, this crowd. Maybe you're feeling it today. In that context, he says, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's through Jesus that we find forgiveness for our sins. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You can bet especially the Gentiles in the room heard that everyone and every sin thought, is that really for me? You might be thinking that here today. Is that really for me that Jesus, through him, I could be forgiven from every sin? And for them, they had tried for centuries to be justified under the law of Moses. To be justified is to be declared right before God. And what Paul's telling them here is, all of you fall short. You missed the law at one point. You missed the whole thing. The law was never designed to save us. It was designed to point us to Jesus. You cannot be made right with God by doing your best. You can only be right with God by coming to his perfect son who offers forgiveness. And then he gives them a warning. He says, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. What is that about? Well, he's quoting Habakkuk. In the original prophecy, God was going to use the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and take them captive because of their sin. And the people in Israel had a hard time believing that. The Babylonians, these are some bad dudes, God. Are you really going to, you're not really going to do that. But guess what? God did. And in the context that he's talking to these people and he's talking to us, he's saying, don't do what they did. Don't listen to what God has said, that I've sent you a Savior that died for you and rose again. If you trust in him, you'll be forgiven. He's saying, don't look at that and scoff on it because if you do, my judgment will fall on you if you reject the only 
path I offer you. Don't let what happened to them happen to you. And I imagine Paul, he, he says that he preached many times even with tears that people would believe in Jesus. I, I don't know if this was one of those moments, but I imagine it was. That's how much Paul cared about the people in this room. He didn't want one of them to scoff and miss the salvation that Jesus offered. So how'd they respond? Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue The people invited him to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Come back next Saturday. We want to hear more. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. If they're telling them to continue in the grace of God, that means that a number of them embraced the message that day. This is you could this morning that yes, there is this Savior that died for me and rose again. I believe that. They said, continue in that. But as was often the pattern, verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's awesome. Almost the whole city, many of them are Gentiles, gather around this little synagogue. It's as full as it's ever been. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They'd never seen their synagogue that full with their message. So these new guys come in town and preach about this Jesus, and now almost the whole city is here. They're jealous. We know that's their motive for what they're about to do. It says they began to contradict what Paul was saying, not because of the facts, but because they were jealous, and they heaped abuse on him. And I want you to listen to their response. Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Paul said in Romans, the gospel goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. The Jews had all the promises. And just strategically, if they had preached to the Gentiles first in these cities, they never would have got in the synagogue. So they wanted to start with their own people out of love and and God's order. He says, we had to do that first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. That is a sad moment. You feel the eternal weight of that moment as this group of Jews rejected the only message that could give them life. And yet Paul, out of necessity and even out of what Jesus told his early disciples, said, if you won't accept it, I'm not here to keep ramming it down your throat. I'll look for people who will. It's not out of spite. It's just the way it goes. It's the way Jesus ordered it. We'll talk about it in a moment. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That was in Isaiah. God originally said that to the nation of Israel. I want you to be a light to the Gentiles. And what's happening here that's really sad, Paul is saying, Guys, you're supposed to be shining this light to the Gentiles with us. That was the purpose of our nation, to shine the light of Jesus. But since you won't, Paul and Barnabas and all those who believe, we will go on and shine this light. We've got the same command from Jesus. He says, you are the light of the world. The light should not be hidden. 
Are we going to be a part of that sharing the light, part of that story? Or are we going to turn away from it? When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They honored the word of the Lord. Check this out. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. That's a cool verse. We can get all tripped up on predestination and stuff. I'm excited about this verse because the idea is that God is in the process of appointing people to come to eternal life. As we go out there and share the good news about Jesus, we do not go alone. God is drawing those who will believe. And just as he drew this group to that synagogue that morning to hear the good news about Jesus and those who were appointed believed, I believe there may be some in this room this morning that were appointed to be here at this moment to hear the good news about this Savior that can forgive you. He's still in the business of drawing people to eternal life. And as should happen when people believe, it says the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. When you find really good news, you don't keep it to yourself. When you find really good news, you can't wait to share it with other people. Verse 50, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They went to these men and women and said, these guys are causing trouble. Would you help us get rid of them? They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But I want you to check out the response of Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium, another city, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That shaking the dust off the feet, Jesus had told his disciples when he sent them out two by two. When you go into a town and they reject my message, shake the dust off your feet and leave. It's basically that that dust is a witness that your feet were there sharing the good news of Jesus. And it's a witness that these people have heard the good news and rejected it. It's almost, it's a very solemn and powerful declaration that you heard the message from us, from God, and you rejected it. We are now moving on. It's a sad moment in a lot of ways. But Paul and Barnabas follow the orders of their master And though they were persecuted, check this out, the disciples were filled with joy. I believe that's the new believers in that city and Paul and Barnabas and filled with the Holy Spirit. And what I see there, a lot of times we're too results-based when we go out with the good news of Jesus. We'll go out and share the good news of Jesus with a loved one or a group of people. And unless all of that group or that individual accepts Jesus, we leave dejected. We leave depressed because we feel like, I, did, I messed this up, I didn't do that. I, I don't see that with these guys. I don't believe they found their, their satisfaction, their fulfillment in the results. They found their fulfillment simply knowing that they were obeying their master, carrying out what he had told them to do, and knowing that he loved them. In the Holy Spirit, they left filled with joy, even though many in the city persecuted them. So... Bottom line, where I want to go today is Paul was showing them, and I believe he's showing us, that God's got this huge redemptive story that started before creation, the story of him saving people back into relationship with himself. Do you see that as only past history or only future? Or do you realize that that story is going on today? 
And if you're here today and you've heard the good news about Jesus and haven't made a decision about it, how will you respond to it at this moment in history? Will you respond like some in that synagogue did and said, they believed. You say, dear, dear Father, I, I believe that all of history pointed to your son, Jesus, who died for my sin and rose again. I put all my trust in that. I'm done trying to be justified by the law or my works or some other religious path. I want your son to be my savior. That could be you today. How will you respond? Or if you're already a believer, will you say, hey, I want to be a part of spreading this story? Just like these new believers in Antioch said, hey, they went throughout the region and spread the word. When you look back on the history of the salvation story, will you one day read that this group, too, went out throughout the region and spread the word? And then when it comes to sharing the gospel, are we ready? Are you ready this week? You know the gospel. Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Are you looking for those opportunities? And are you aiming? Are, are you thinking about who is this I'm talking to and what are their needs and where do they come from? And when it comes to the moment, are you ready to fire the truth of God's word, not at them, but to them in love? Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the, the crazy idea that your big redemptive story still goes on today. And you invite us to be a part of it. You invite us to respond in faith first and then obedience out of that faith, Lord, to, to be a part of spreading that very story. Oh God, may you use us in this community and around the world for that purpose, be it in Asia or the Philippines or Dewey, Mayer, Chino Valley, Prescott, Prescott Valley. God, help us to be ready this week. Help us to think about the context that we speak the gospel in. And we pray for those who are appointed to eternal life, Lord, that we get to witness them coming in. Father, even as we collect our offering tonight, we pray that it would go towards that end, to advance your kingdom, to spread your word, to spread your story of salvation. In Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.